welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. If you're, uh, if you're anything like me, then you need these constant reminders that it's not by our might and it's it's definitely not by our power but we are fully dependent on the spirit of our God because apart from him we can do nothing so it's, it's helpful to get those reminders all too often I feel like I got to do it on my own and all I got to do is relinquish the control I already don't got say father I'm dependent on you God we're dependent on you and so it's it's good to be a part of a people where we're all dependent on the same God in the same way so I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I, I hope you're glad. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. 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 While, while I have you standing, why don't you just go ahead and, and open your Bibles to the first chapter of John. The first chapter, the gospel of John, beginning at verse 19 and while you get there, I know Pastor Vernon mentioned that uh, Pastor E is still resting and recuperating at home. He tried his best to get here this Sunday to preach. Um, but by midweek, he hit a wall. Uh, and so um, he asked some of us what we thought and we told him he needed to stay home. <laughs> and get some rest um, but that, that that just shows you what kind of pastor you have uh, he, he wasn't fully 100% but he wanted so wanted to be here with you all uh, and he wanted us to communicate that um, for him on his behalf that he misses you wanted to be here was looking forward to be here but we need him 100% amen somebody uh, and so we're glad that he's able to get a few weeks just to kind of rest and recover uh, and, and just are praying for him uh, and his, his recovery over this time. So um, let's continue on in our Advent series, series, Make Way for the King. This week is the theme of preparation. Uh, if you didn't know, Advent typically has four themes that come with it. Hope, preparation, love, and joy. Uh, and this week we are in the week where we're focusing on this idea of preparation, which is why we are in John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. I'm going to have y'all uh, read it, uh, 19 through 28. Uh, I'm going to get it started. Then why don't you join me in reading, and we'll read together the last verse, verse 28. Here's the word of the Lord. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Keep reading. 
And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. I just want to take a minute this morning to touch from the topic, I'm just here to set the stage. I'm just here to set the stage. Let's pray. Father, we are... Lord, we stand in awe of you. your awesomeness can be overwhelming. And yet in all of your greatness, you decided to bring us near. What kind of God does such a thing? those who were far off would be brought near those who were foreigners and strangers to the covenants of promise would be called sons and daughters what are we but thankful of God simply for the fact that we get to be in your presence. Breathe your spirit's presence on us, oh God. And help us to draw closer and closer to you. It's in the matchless name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. I'm just here to set the stage. You know, one of the things that, um, that I really enjoy doing is laughing. Despite the tears that you see in my, my eyes currently, I, I love I love to laugh. Uh, if you know me well, or even marginally, uh, you know that I can be somewhat goofy uh, and a little bit of a jokester, but I, I enjoy laughter, and I really believe it's one of the things that has strengthened my marriage and even the family dynamic that me and my wife have with our kids is how much we laugh together, how much we enjoy laughing not only with one another, but at one another. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that me and my wife love doing together to laugh is watching stand-up comedy. That got real quiet. I'm not going to get controversial. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to mention Dave Chappelle and, uh, you know, the whole, you know, I'm not even going to say his name. But last night, uh, we, we, we went on the date uh, down at the, uh, the Punchline Philly. 
Um, oh yeah, some of y'all know, y'all was real quiet when I said I like watching stand-up comedy. All of a sudden, y'all know where the punchline at, huh? Uh, but we went down there last night for a date to go see Tony Baker. Okay, all right, all right. And, um, you know, he had, he had a guy that came up on, on the stage before him uh, that was his opening act. And the, the, the opening act, uh, he, he, he made mention of something that got my mind thinking. He mentioned how uh, Tony had asked him to come perform kind of last minute. And originally he wasn't going to do it, but then decided to come perform. And it got me to thinking that typically when you go see a show, none of the opening acts are on the advertisement. Like when I bought my tickets, I didn't see nobody else's name, nobody else's social media information. It was Tony Baker's show. And yet, there were people who performed before him, whose names weren't on any of the advertisements, weren't on any of the billing. I didn't even know who they were going to be until I got there. It's usually an up-and-coming performer who has a smaller following and is, is trying to gather some momentum. And they're not there for themselves, primarily. Right? Now, they, they want to do a good job because they want to continue to build their following, but that's not the reason why they're there. An opening performer is there to help prepare the crowd for the headliner. And so their, their job, his job last night, was to make sure that we got laughing good. That we were engaged with the flow of the back and forth between the onstage comedian and the audience. He wanted us ready so that when Tony Baker stepped on the stage, he didn't have to do any work to get us warmed up. We were already ready to go. His job was primarily to prepare us for someone who had not come yet but was on their way. There is a lot of this idea of preparation flowing all through this text. And it's fair for us to ask if John's audience is even aware or really understood what exactly he was preparing them for. I got one point for us this morning, then I'm out your way. John the Baptist was in his day what we should be in ours. I want you to hear me. John the Baptist was in his day what we should be in ours. There's a, a sense of both looking back and pointing forward for us in this text. In order to really understand the dynamics of what's happening here and the implications for us in the 21st century is, is going to require both reflection and expectation. And, and by the time we get here in verse 19, this isn't the first time that John has been introduced in this chapter. 
John was already introduced back in verse eight, six through eight and then 15, where it introduces us. It said there was a man by the name of John who was sent by God. And, and if 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 the Bible, if John, the, if John, the gospel writer is telling us that this man named John was sent by God, it must mean that he's somebody important. And yet we're immediately told that he's not the light. The light being God, who would eventually come in the flesh, the Messiah, the awaited one, the one that Israel was waiting for. John, though he shows up and is important, he's not the light. So we're introduced to him. And then after this prologue uh, opening, this gospel book that tells us about this coming of the word, the light who became flesh and dwelt among us. Then it says that this was the testimony of John. And so it seems like by the time we get to verse 19, that we are not dropping in on the beginning of John's ministry. Right. We're, we're probably at the, the towards the latter parts of of John's ministry, because it, it seems as though he's he's gathered enough of a following to start creating some noise in the region. Right. Like, listen, if you ain't doing nothing important, ain't nobody special looking for you. I know we got a lot of conspiracy think, uh, uh, thinkers that think everybody after them. Everybody ain't after you. Like, you got to be doing something worth somebody's time and attention to come after you. Nonetheless, John, John has been preaching and baptizing in this region. And at some point, the religious leaders in Jerusalem got word and they started to think for themselves, we, we don't know who he is or why he's doing what he's doing. All we know is that lots of people are going out to see him and hear him. And if they're going out to see and hear him, that's less people that are coming to see and hear us. So we need to send some people out there to see what John is about. And so they... They get to John and they ask this question, verse 19. They say, who are you? But the you in this delegation's question is in the emphatic, which means they are challenging John. They are saying, you, who are you? Or who do you think you are? And it's interesting here that John identifies this group as being sent by the Jews, because here in the in, in the book, this is the first occasion that we we see him use this terminology, which you, if you keep reading through the Gospel of John, you'll see him use this terminology, the Jews, uh, as as a short form way of identifying multiple groups of religious leaders that were hostile, not only to John, but also to Jesus. Right. And these groups didn't always get along, but they had a common enemy. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they would often band together to try to discredit Jesus and discredit John. And so here he's just making reference to the fact that these are religious leaders being sent out from Jerusalem of the Levites and the priests to come and find out who John is and potentially shut him down if need be. Now, John answers this question 
by talking about the Messiah or, or unidentifying himself with the Messiah. And based on their question, it wouldn't have been a far fetch for him to understand what they were asking because in first century Palestine, uh, it was rife with messianic expectation. People were awaiting for the return of the Messiah. So much so that if you read over in Luke chapter 3, it lets us know that people who were even coming to John and hearing him preach and being baptized by him were, were wondering themselves whether or not he was the Messiah. They thought he was. I mean, I mean, John, John was preaching a good message. Right. I know we don't always talk. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But 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 they, but but they people were wondering because of who John was and what his ministry, uh, how big his ministry was growing, what he was doing. Is is is, is the Messiah here? Like, is it is it him now? Now, I, I love what 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 John does, because him interpreting their question correctly, he automatically answers and he says uh, he didn't deny it, verse 20, he didn't deny it, but confessed. I know the wording of that seems a little strange, but all it means is that he came right out and said it. Like he, he didn't hold them in suspense. He came right out when they asked him, who are you? And said, I ain't the Messiah. Like he, he didn't even have to think about it. You know, he, he, it wasn't a problem from him, for him to, to not be associated with that kind of messianic title. He said, no, I'm, 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 I'm not him. I'm not the Christ, which, which if you read the, the prologue, it, it almost reinforces what's said in, in verse 8 where it says that he was not the light. Right, because both, both passages seem to reflect that there was an awareness, at least by some who honored John as the light, or as the Christ. And so the purpose of his disclaimer is not to put himself down, but to set the stage for the explicit testimony of Jesus he's about to give. And so he said, well, okay, if you're not, if you're not the Christ, well, maybe you're Elijah. So Malachi chapter four, verse five says that, that, that God said he would send Elijah before that great and terrible day, you know, the day of the Lord. And so they, there was an expectation that, that, that Elijah would, would also come. But, but, but John here says, like, nah, I'm, I'm not Elijah either, right? But, but here's what we have to understand, right, is there's, there's, there's a sense in which in the synoptic gospel, synoptic being Matthew, Mark, Luke, right, is, is that Elijah was indeed, uh, or, or John was indeed an Elijah figure, Meaning that there was there there was a sense in which uh, 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 John typified an Elijah like character in terms of the mission that God was sending him to do. Yes. Right. Like, and, and it's explicit in Matthew uh, because Jesus even says it and it's implicitly applied in Mark and Luke. But but that's not what John is denying here. Right. In 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 John's gospel. Right. There seems to be reflected an older Jewish tradition in which Elijah himself is not just the forerunner of the Christ, the Messiah, but is the forerunner for the God of Israel at large. And he himself is considered a messianic figure. And so in light of what John the Baptist assumes he knows that they're talking about in reference to this Elijah, he says, no, I'm not that Elijah that you think I am. I, I'm, I, I'm not this messianic Elijah. 
And so they, then they keep questioning him. Right? Are you the, are you the, are, uh, who are you? Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Well, well, maybe you're Elijah sent back. No, I'm not, I'm not that Elijah either. Well, then maybe you're a prophet. You know, Deuteronomy 18, 15, he says, you know, I'll send a prophet greater than Moses to you in, in the future. And he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that prophet either. And so, of course, if you keep asking somebody questions and, they, and the only answer they give is, no, I'm not that person. No, I'm not that person. No, I'm not that person. They still ain't told you who they is. A bunch of negative responses don't make a positive answer. They're like, okay, well, you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. So then who are you? And they give John an opportunity. They invite John to state his identity in his own terms. I love, I love what John does here. Verse, in, verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 23, or, or in verse 22, it says, who are you then, they asked. We need, we need to give an answer to those who sent us, right? Like, you know, that, that's the crazy part, because if I was John, I'd be like, well, I, I ain't talking to you. I want to talk to your boss. <laughs> like, you ain't even nobody special if you got sent here. <laughs> they, say, they say, what can you tell us about yourself? And so this is John's response in verse 23. He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight. What, what is he crying? No. Make straight the way of the Lord. And, and, then, and then, then he says, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And so, so John here is identifying himself. Not by name, but by activity. Notice he doesn't give them a name. All he does is quote Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and say, who I am is in reference to what God said this person was going to come and do. Listen, listen. Uh, so he says, I'm not, I'm not any of those people you wanted me to be. I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice. I'm just an anonymous voice. I, I'm just a bodiless voice. You don't even know where I'm at in the wilderness. All you know is I'm somewhere in the wilderness and you hear a voice crying out. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. But, but here, here's what we have to understand about what John was crying out. And this is, this is where some of that Bible study methods comes into place, where we got to go look at what, like, what, what was happening in John's activity in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And it lets us know that John's message was centered on the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's primary role and responsibility was not just merely a call to get baptized. It wasn't just a call to participate in religious activities. It was a call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes I wonder 
Are we a generation that cries out the same message in preparation of Christ's return? Or have we created a gospel that allows for people to be accepted by God without repentance and turning from sin? Can I I be honest? Can I I be honest? We've become a culture that has come to define safe spaces as places or relationships where there is not just non-disagreement, but wholesale acceptance. And, and, And it basically says, if you don't champion all that I say and do, then you're not a safe place. And sometimes they'll take it a step further and say, you're actually harming me. You know, words like intolerance and hate and blank phobic have been weaponized to hinder any pushback of your truth. It's just the non-church equivalent of God told me. I'll let y'all sit with that for a second. So now, because you as a Christian don't want to be labeled or identified with those words by the unbelieving world and some Christians, you've chosen to acquiesce by being only a safe or affirming space so that you can be seen as an ally, but you never get to the gospel. And even when you hint at it, It's a gospel of Christ's love and never about his imminent return to judge the world for sin. And so John tells them who he is by telling them what God sent him to do. Voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, now in the original context, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, You've got to understand that the people were in exile. This was talking about when the people were in exile. And though the people, here's here's what it said. This this is what it means uh, based on the, this is what the prophet Isaiah means when 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 he's saying this in Isaiah chapter 40, that though the people have experienced a judgment in exile, restoration will come through the personal intervention of God. That Israel's only hope is God breaking into human history. Don't that sound familiar? That God is intervening so he can provide the type of ultimate restoration that can only come from him. And so he says there's a voice crying out in the wilderness and it says, make straight the way of the Lord. In in the context, the Old Testament prophet is calling for a metaphorical improvement in the road system of the desert to the east. It's a he's calling for a leveling of the hills and the valleys and a straightening of the curves. Why is he calling for that? He's calling for that so that it can be an accommodation to the return of the covenant people of God from exile to himself. And so even in Isaiah, the end of the exile begins to serve as a model, a literary type, if you will, of the final return of God's people to himself, which is far greater than a return to a geographical Jerusalem. And it's, it's this typological connection 
that the New Testament writers understand to be fulfilled in the voice of John the Baptist, who cried in the desert, preparing a way for the Lord, thereby announcing the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And so at the, at the core of John's role in helping people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah was getting them to commit to a life of repentance, turning from sin, and turning to God. Hear that. The primary aspect of his role was preaching a message that invited people to commit to a life of repentance, turning from sin, and turning back to God. It, 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 all, all, he, all it means is that there was some stuff in the way that had to get out the way in order to prepare for his arrival. I, I, I'll make it plain for you. I'll give you an example. It's, it's, like, it's like cleaning up your house when company come over. I'm going to assume some of the quiet is because some of y'all might not do that. I don't, know, I don't know why black folk just, you know, we just let people show up and be like, oh, y'all family anyway. <laughs> why do we make everybody family when we don't want to clean? <laughs> Listen, when you, when you know you got company coming over, right, what, what you do? You, you make sure ain't no dishes left on the cabinet. Even if you don't wash them, you at least throw them in the, in the dishwasher. Sometimes you throw them in the oven. Like, I just get, I get to it late. Y'all, y'all thought I didn't know them secrets, huh? I grew up in a black house, too. I know what's going on. You know, you clean the bathroom just in case, at least, at least the downstairs bathroom, in case, in case somebody going to use it. You know, vacuum, take stuff off the couches. You clean up. Why? Because when you have a guest come over, when you're expecting somebody to come, you want your space to be open and presentable. You, you, want, you want it to look like you actually cared that they were on their way over. Listen, so, some of us need to be aware of the fact that Jesus is on his way back and that there's a lot of junk and mess in our lives that needs to be cleaned up that can help prepare the way for his return. Now listen, I'm not talking about salvifically because if you're in Christ, then you've already been saved to new life. Right. He's coming back to get you either way. But that don't mean you can just live all licentiously and think he ain't going to care when he come back. It's a ministry of preparation. Now, it says that they had been sent from. The Pharisees, and it's in this passage that we see the two missions in this text confronting one another. John's mission from God and the delegation's mission from the Jews. The delegation was sent from the Pharisees and John was sent from God. Ain't nothing deep here. All, all I wanted to say was that it's very uh, possible to be a part of the religious establishment and still not be on the same mission as God. And so when, after, after John identifies himself with this Isaiah activity, they ask him, 
then why do you baptize? So, so now we get to the reason why they showed up in the first place. The reason wasn't just simply who he was. They wanted to know why he was baptizing and if why he was baptizing had any implications on who he was. And so they said, why do you baptize as if there's some supposed religious gatekeepers that get to decide who can be involved in religious activity? Y'all know them types of religious gatekeepers. If you don't think like I think about scripture, then it's clear you're not a Christian. Maybe I shouldn't be that petty in a sermon, but. Here's here's why they, they wanted to know about his baptizing activity. Is because once for all ritual baptism was used in Judaism only for proselytes or non-Jews who were committing themselves to the beliefs, traditions, and religion of Judaism. And so anyone presuming to baptize those who were already Jews by birth was in effect putting them in position of a proselyte. Such a procedure would have signaled that a new age was at hand and that all Israel needed cleansing. And so, to the delegation, anyone who baptized in water seemed to be making some kind of messianic claim. And I love John's response because he really doesn't answer them. But he replies with an implied distinction between the water baptism that he's doing and the eschatological cleansing his questioners have in mind. He says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one that you don't even know. The implication here is that this other figure will carry out a far more significant baptism than John's, i.e., Think of the convo that Jesus has with Nicodemus in a couple chapters in John chapter 3. And so John is saying, don't worry about this baptism with water because there's one among you right now that you don't know that's coming with a greater baptism than mine. And he's who you should be concerned about. And so John's role is to make him known, this one, not to the delegation or to the religious establishment, but to all of Israel. And, and it's, it's, it's possible, even probable, that the, the delegation should have or would have recognized John's use of language, the one who comes, as a messianic title comparable to the three that they had already mentioned earlier in the text. But surely this would have raised more questions than it answered when they went back to report to those that they represented. And so by the, by the time we get to the end of this passage, John begins to make explicit what so far he has only hinted at that the coming one is indeed far greater than he is and the metaphor that he uses 
is that this is one, the strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie. Listen, I, I don't want you to miss this because this blew me away. But untying a sandal thong was a chore that was never done by a disciple for their teacher. Are you hearing me? It was a chore reserved for a slave. Do you get it now? John is not likening himself to the slave. Because he says, I'm unworthy to untie the sandal. And so if untying the sandal is the work of a slave, then he's saying that I am far less worthy than a slave to untie his sandal. That's just how great he is. He's saying, the one who comes after me, the one who is on his way, who's among you, who's coming with a greater baptism than I. He said, he's so much greater than me that I can't even do slave work for him. This is the measure of Jesus's greatness. See, John's role wasn't to keep the spotlight on himself but to prepare people for one who was coming, who was far greater than him, with a far greater baptism, doing far greater works. And listen to me, just as there was preparation necessary in John's day, we must too be on guard and aware of the one who is coming. Matthew says that no one knows the day or the hour. But he also tells us to keep watch because the Son of Man will come when you least expect him. Peter tells us that he'll come just like a thief in the night. And Luke even says that a sinful lifestyle can dull your mind, causing you to be all caught off guard when that day occurs. I just want you to know that the there's one who's coming, who has already come, and is coming again. You know, when, when I went to the, the comedy show last night, the guy who opened for Tony Baker did a really good job. You know, it, like he did, he, did you know, he, he had us laughing. The first guy that got up, not so much. <laughs> but, but the second guy, you could tell he's a, you know, he was a professional because he got right on stage and stepped into the awkwardness of the lack of laughs. And him stepping into that awkwardness made us laugh more because we had to acknowledge how awkward it was that the first guy didn't make us laugh. And so he did a really good job. But as funny as he was, he still didn't compare to who I actually went there to see. Because the later was greater than the former. Jesus, the God-man, already made his way to earth once. And it will be very different from when he comes again. See, when Jesus first came, he came as a child born in a manger, 
wrapped in swaddling clothes. But when he returns, he'll come as a king, riding on a white horse with an army at his back. When, when he first came, he came to serve the world, to save the world, not to condemn it. But when he comes back, he will judge the world with righteousness and with truth. When he first came, no one knew who he was. To them, he was just the son of a carpenter. But when he returns, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God, the Father, people of God. All I wanted to stop by this morning to say was let us live in such a way that it's clear that we are setting the stage for his return. Let's pray. Father, we have hope because we hope in your return. We are indeed not people to be pitied because we know the resurrection is true, that Jesus is alive and that one day he will come back. And so Father, we, we want to be a people who really live out what it means to be your representatives in the world. Help us to be fearless, God. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be loving and patient and kind. Help us to be truthful. Help us to stand when we're afraid of the response. We wouldn't be the first to do so. We come in a long line of Christians who have had to stand firm as they prepare the way for your return. Help us to pray with boldness that we would stand on the rock of our salvation, immovable, O oh God, but always for your glory. Help us, O oh God, today and be with us, we pray. Jesus mighty name amen as we prepare for communion I want to ask that you stand with me this will give those at home who are watching us virtually an opportunity to grab something that can stand in place for them for communion as well as we enter into this moment it's an opportunity for us again to reflect and look forward with expectation because when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples he said that this bread would be his body and so we look back and we reflect on the sacrifice that was made for us at the cross in our place for our sins and he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said eat all of it and as much as this is an opportunity for us to reflect 
on what was accomplished at the cross. It's also a looking forward with great expectation to that great, that great day where Jesus will drink of the fruit of the vine with us in his kingdom. When we will be home with him and we will feast at his table for all eternity. And so this, the drink, is his blood which was poured out for our sins. Drink all of it. Receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace from now and forevermore. If you agree with that, say amen, amen, and amen. Epiphany Fellowship, we love you. God bless you. Enjoy your week. For all of those who have joined us on the Zoom, God bless you as well. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you.